Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravindra is here in the studio with me. So, Rav, say hello to everyone. Share your special message of the day and tell them how they can involve themselves in a live chat. Well, hello, everyone. It is great to be with you. I know we've got a fascinating show coming up. Uh, Eldon has been going on and on about um, our guest book for quite some time. So, we are in for some fun, and that's great to take our mind off of some of the stuff going on in the world. Now it's time just to focus on us, and um, as I said, enjoy ourselves, learn something new. Um, if you would like to comment on the show during the show, do join us on the Facebook Provocative Enlightenment Radio page. You can simply do a search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. You will see there we have the announcement for today's show, and you can chat to us there. I'm there. Andrea is there. Um, so, yeah, any comments or any questions that you have, please just pop them in there. Yeah, of course, especially any questions for our guests. All right. In this week's spotlight, I want to discuss change. For every thir- <laughs> for over 30 years, I have listened to many people share their ambitions and goals, almost all of which would require some change if they were to be successful. Some desire to simply lose weight or stop smoking. Others long to enjoy happier and healthier lives. The majority of people also want more money. When I ask folks, what is it they need to change in order to be successful, they address actions almost exclusively. Seldom have I heard, I need to change my thinking. Change requires a mental component, and we all know that. So why is it so ignored? I recently interacted with a team of rehab professionals within a hospital. They administer both a health education and exercise program chiefly for cardiac patients. The exercise is monitored and structured well, but the education part is an example of why people fail to change. Let me flesh that out a little. The goal of their educational program is to inform patients of the importance of taking their medications regularly, uh, the type of medications and, of course, the abuse potentials. They also aim to educate patients about food and diet what foods to consume, and what foods to avoid. This makes sense, but when I ask, where's the mental training, the mental component of this, the things that will motivate people, that will assist them in understanding themselves and their habits, the mindfulness or meditation or autogenic relaxation techniques, counseling and so forth, they inform me that they do not cover these things, because they copy other rehab facilities. Okay, so think of it this way. One of the patients, when asked what he ate, responded, primarily hamburgers, because of my job. 
Now, I'm quite confident that this fellow already knew that hamburgers are considered junk food and not the best thing for you. The hospital team telling him that hamburgers were not good for him probably failed to provide him with any new information. They also totally neglected teaching him strategies to actually want to eat healthier foods, in addition to techniques that would empower his own innate self-healing abilities. So imagine a car, or any car. Now you want your car to work well, but you have some driving habits that are hard on the car. You're either full on the gas or the brake. You're informed that repeatedly braking hard damages the braking system and can cause other issues with the suspension, etc. Follow this analogy a little further. The team of mechanics tell you how you should drive. Slow down. Don't punch the gas over and over. Change the oil off and keep your fluid levels full. Check your brakes every six months. And be sure to have a thorough inspection of all engine, transmission, cooling, and suspension components performed regularly. Now, just assume that you're a very busy person and doing all those things is not quite as easy as it sounds. However, now you have all the information to properly care for your car. Does that mean you will? Indeed, how many of you actually do take this sort of care of your car? What kind of mind training would it take for you to prioritize this kind of care for your car? The body is much more than a machine. It requires care that is more demanding than that of a car. We know what the healthy foods are. We've all been told to eat our fruit and vegetables, to avoid fats, and so forth. We know smoking is very damaging to the body. We know that obesity underlies many forms of illness. We know the many advantages in regular exercise. We're all aware of the dangers inherent to excess stress and so forth. So why isn't there a mental component, a mind training aspect to help the cardiac patients? There is too little, if any, emphasis placed on the importance of conditioning your mind to support your goals and ambitions. With a little thought, we know that it is our mind that enables our success, and yet most invest little, if anything, in training their minds to support them. Indeed, just a little bit of a careful thought will tell us that the problems lay not in knowing what we should do, but rather in the mental processes that stop us from achieving these healthier behaviors. Therefore, the real problem rests in the mind. It's not about knowledge. It's about how we use it. I would be willing to wager that the hamburger-eating cardiac patient will do little to really change his situation. Oh, he may restrict, for some bit of time, his consumption of hamburgers. But sooner or later, the idea that, well, it's just one hamburger, and or look at how many people eat hamburgers, will creep in and undermine whatever resolution he may have made about hamburgers. Think about your own life. How many things are you doing that are not in your best interest? And ask yourself why. Perhaps seriously asking yourself this question may provoke a new dedication in doing something meaningful about changing. We spend so much time on conditioning everything, 
how we look, how we dress, except our minds. I hope so. But it's you that must make the change that you're seeking. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, I I think that's interesting. I mean, it is so obvious to us. There are all of these different areas where we're all aware of what we're supposed to do. It's like uh, trying to drop those few pounds. You know, we're aware that exercise more, eat less, blah, blah, blah. But why we don't action it? You know, well, that stuff does all rest in the mind, and that's what you have to look at. I I find it interesting. Our guest today has got some brilliant insight into how we can work on understanding ourselves and perhaps changing some of these self-destructive patterns that we may have lived with. All right, let's go to today's show, The Unconscious, with our special guest, Dr. Joel Weinberger professor in the Derner School of Psychology at Adelphi University. Dr. Weinberger completed his postdoctoral work on human motivation at Harvard University. He is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and of the American Psychological Association. He has authored or co-authored approximately 100 publications. His research on the unconscious and unconscious processes has been recognized with the Ulf Krieg Award from the University of Lund, Sweden. His new book, The Unconscious, is the best I have ever read. You're going to want to get this one. All right, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Weinberger. Thank you, Eldon. It's, it's great to be here, and thank you for all those kind words. They are well-deserved. I cannot tell you... And I'm not exaggerating this. Ravinder, how many tabs have I got on this book? I'm not not any good with zeros. You know that. (laughs) The book is pinned with tabs from front to back. Incredible work. And and so thorough. That's and so comprehensive. That that I, I found very impressive. And I was just riveted as I read through your book. But all right, Professor. We like to know three things on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? To that end, what are you passionate about? And when and why did you become interested in the unconscious? Okay. Um, I'm passionate about understanding the mind. I think I've always been that way since, since I was a little kid, understanding why people do crazy things. I should say a little bit of my background. My parents are are Holocaust survivors, and so I heard about the most horrific things that could possibly happen, and I tried, why would anyone do that? How did my parents survive this thing, and what does that tell us about human nature? So coming from there, I almost had to be a psychologist, so I became one. And then I... I'm listening to people, nobody is inherently evil or terrible. They always tell you what the wonderful reason is that they did something, even if it was a bad thing. Uh, Even Hitler said he was trying to save the German people, however crazy that sounded. And so I tried to understand, well, why do people do these things? What's going on in their heads? That got me to the unconscious. Um, And I started studying the mind. Uh, I don't know if you're interested in how I got specifically into the unconscious, but that's that's who I am. So I, I, I got interested in human motivation. You mentioned that I studied specifically human motivation as a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard, and that led me to the unconscious because that's where most, most of our motivation is. And so here I am talking to you. 
and I'm I'm blessed that you are here, and and you're here to share what you've learned in 20 years of researching the unconscious. You're today's spotlight, Professor. What are your thoughts on the idea of working to understand and and, and even re-engineer our own minds as a part and parcel of a, of a proactive life? I'm in complete agreement that that we need to do that. And I think step one is the step I'm trying to make, at least little tiny baby steps, is to try to understand how the mind works. And in order to understand how the mind works, you can't avoid trying to understand how the unconscious works, because that's most of our mind. Most of what we do, most of what we think, most of what we feel uh, are are residing in, in our the unconscious parts of our mind. So the first thing to do is understand how does it work, where did it come from, why is it the way it is, and then knowledge is power. When you know that, you're in a position to work with it, to leverage it, to uh, to uh, work on its strengths, to leverage the strengths, to uh, accent the weaknesses and see what we can do about it, and so on. All right, to that end, let's, let's you know, talk a little bit about implicit learning. Um I was impressed in your book by the or by your book by the fact that implicit learning is a form of memory that doesn't degenerate while explicit memory is something that you know um, age tends to wear on and a number of different diseases can just simply destroy uh so please unpack for our audience what implicit learning is how it influences our lives, and why it is significant that it doesn't decay. Okay, so the best way I can demonstrate that implicit learning exists is by asking people, do you remember anything before age three or four? And pretty much you don't. And then I would ask, so therefore it must have all been irrelevant. Obviously it was not. You learned many things, many skills. You learned to walk, you learned to talk. You learned who your parents were. You learned how to love. You remember none of it. And then, so what happened? You learned it implicitly. Otherwise, you couldn't have learned it. What is implicit learning? Implicit learning is is what I call in the book radically empirical. What I mean by that in English is when two things happen together, you learn them as if one caused the other. Now, oftentimes one did cause the other, and oftentimes one did not cause the other. They just happened to hang together. This, by the way, is how we learn prejudices. Uh, things hang together and we, we assume one caused the other and then we, we end up with a biased point of view. So um, why doesn't it degenerate? It is the main way we learn, it is the main way animals learn. After all, our ancestry is an animal ancestry. Explicit learning is literally built on top of it. It doesn't develop until after age three and it decays with age. And believe me, I know because I'm aging. So we have word funding problems. We have uh, uh, we don't remember people's names. We uh, we can't recall as well as we did. But we have a certain wisdom that we've accumulated that I think more than makes up for it, which is why older people make better decisions, which is why in our Constitution, you can't be 36 years old and uh, under 36 and be president of the United States. So through experience, you've learned things that maybe you can and maybe you can't give words to but they're in you now and that's that's implicit learning i could get into the weeds about it but that's that's basically what 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 i'm talking about you don't know you know it but you know it 
Okay, you open your book with a, a thorough review of subliminal research as one of the forms of for understanding implicit learning. Um, and, and there was a period during the 70s and early 80s when there was little argument about whether or not subliminal information influenced us. Now, in my opinion, and please opine on this, the Judas Priest case in Reno, Nevada, was a turning point, at least among the populace at large. CBS poured money into discrediting subliminal influence in order to defeat the idea that they may have had some liability in the release of the recording containing subliminal content that allegedly contributed to the deaths of two uh, troubled teenage boys. So, in addition to your opinion regarding the impact engineered by CBS, why did subliminal influence become the whipping boy by so many in mainstream psychology then? Uh, th there are several reasons. Uh, first of all, I know about that case because Howard Chevron, who was a colleague of mine who I knew, he has since passed away, was the psychologist who testified for that case. I testified there, too. You did as well. Oh, I was unaware I of it. Uh -huh. Okay. So, so... The first thing to say about it, just just to put the matter straight, is you can't make someone quack like a duck or dance like a chicken. What you can do is take something they're already, if not prone to do, but is in their heads, and through these kinds of stimulation, make it more likely that they'll do it. So these kids that hurt themselves, they were troubled kids to begin with, which was the argument that the other side made. But the correct argument was, yes, that's true, but you didn't need to push them over the edge, which is what the subliminal did. Now, in terms of why the field resisted it, first of all, all of society resisted it, but specifically the field was dominated by behaviorism at that time. And behaviorism didn't acknowledge that there was a mind at all, let alone an unconscious mind. And this kind of stuff was arguing that there is an unconscious mind. Moreover, it's important and it can influence you. People don't like it because it means they're out of control. There's some stuff going on that they're unaware of. And if you have a minute, I'll tell you a story. I, I was fortunate enough to meet B.F. Skinner when I was a postdoc at Harvard. And he <laughs> okay. wanted, and please, wanted, please. <laughs> why the hell would B.F. Skinner want to meet me and I'm studying unconscious processes? And he said he wanted to meet me because to his mind, and I use the word mind in our sense, not in his, <laughs> The uh, the presentation of a stimulus subliminally was a new way to present a stimulus. So what it was to him was a stimulus. So he believed the effects. He didn't believe any of the theory. He didn't believe in mind. But he believed if you present a stimulus under certain special conditions, which you and I would call subliminal, would call subliminal, it could have an effect on somebody. I, I was frankly stunned at, at the wordplay, uh, but we had this discussion. So I think that he's, he was among the more open-minded uh, behaviorists. The closed-minded one says, what, there's no mind, so how are you influencing it? And the way they got rid of the subliminal research was by finding methodological flaws in the research. And there's methodological flaws in everything. Nothing is perfect, so they find it. Uh, I think I detailed it in the book, and then it became a race to undo the methodological flaws, and then it became uninteresting and boring, and then finally the zeitgeist won and got rid of it. And thanks to uh, people like you and, and, uh, and attention researchers and people like Howard Chevron, it came back and then it entered the public mind in, in the way you acknowledge. By the way, I had an experience of this sort. I hope I'm not talking too much. 
during no, the, the 2000 election, George Bush was running for president and put out a subliminal ad where he had the word rats over uh, Gore's picture. Right. And he got caught. And the right. first thing they said was it didn't happen. So they slowed down the ad and there it was. So the second thing they said was, well, it was us being artsy and uh, dividing the word Democrats into democ and rats. It really wasn't rats. And then the third, third thing they said is, well, subliminal doesn't work anyway, which is where, where you started. So right. I did a study along with Drew Weston where we presented the subliminal word rats to people. And then we had them evaluate somebody who was kind of neutral. It was a guy in a jacket and tie, young man. And lo and behold, the word rats led to more negative evaluations of the person, which demonstrates that it works and that what they did could have worked. So this this uh, disparaging of subliminal is still going on, is, is, is what it boils down to. You know, a lot of people are under, uh, I, well, let me back up. I have quoted that study from Adelphi several times uh, in in interviews that I've done myself. It was an, it was very well done, an incredible contribution, I think, to understanding. But you know, when you talk about that, people say, "Well, it's illegal. They can't do that." You know, most people are under the assumption that they're protected from subliminal manipulation in the media, et cetera. And they fail to recognize that, well, okay, there's an FTC code, but this particular example you gave, the DNC pursued, that, pursued it as far as they could, and, and that was nowhere. No penalties, no fines, no no anything. Um, comments on that, Professor? You're absolutely correct. The uh, it's a code and it's followed voluntarily. It's not it's not a, a law. It's not a rule. Um, plus, of course, subliminal stimulation in a broad sense goes on all the time. You see a car ad, car ad and a beautiful woman steps out. I'm going to assume when you buy the car, you don't get a beautiful woman that comes with it. <laughs> what they're doing is 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 uh, unconsciously pairing. Uh, an attractive person with the with the product so that you you associate them together. This goes on all the time. Uh, politicians do this all the time. They change the term uh, uh, inheritance ta tax to death tax because there's nothing wrong with being taxed on your inheritance. After all, you didn't earn it. However, to be taxed after someone died, that's just awful. And so these kinds of associations are going on all the time. They're not technically subliminal. But they're below the level of consciousness, and they're affecting us. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the old argument is if you control the definition, you control the argument. And we see a lot of that going on in politics today. But to pull it back around to uh, the nature of implicit, you know, what are your thoughts when, you know, you turn on the television and you're seeing an ad and the ad is, uh, you know, the gombu's coming to town and you're going to get it, but we've got the cure and you've got this person there in a supine position, they're being doted upon, you know, run to your XYZ pharmacy and get ABC. And what are your thoughts on that kind? Do, you, do, do we actually promote disease with those kinds of ads? To a degree, we do. I mean, uh, selling snake oil is, is not new. Uh, the, uh, the unconscious desire and belief in authority 
we know goes all the way back at least to Milgram demonstrating it. And uh, we also know about what's called the sleeper effect, which is unconscious, which I mentioned in the book, which is when you see an ad, you know it has a purpose, you know there's an agenda, so you can dismiss it. Comes a couple of weeks later, all you remember is kind of, you know, I heard that. Someone said that. I always like to tell people when someone says to me, I read that, I say, really, where? They never know. I heard that. Whom? They never know. So the source... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Professor. I was going to say the source disappears, the context disappears, but the content of the message stays, and now it's more believable. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we come back, we've got a break coming up, but when we come back from the break, maybe we can pick it up with why it is that negative messages stick with us more uh, than, than positive messages, why it is that... Even when there, an ad appears or a story appears, it says uh, John Doe did something, and then later it's retracted. We remember that John Doe did and not the retraction. Sure. We're speaking with Professor Joel Weinberger about his work and book, The Unconscious. You have to get this book. It is a fascinating read. And if you care about understanding yourself, this is the manual that will help you do that. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at implicitstrategies, one word, implicitstrategies.com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Joel Weinberger about his work and book, The Unconscious. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at implicitstrategies.com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas and a hobby of mine. So, Professor, you chose Yesterday by the Beatles. So tell us, why is this music important to you and how does it inform us about who you are? <laughs> I've forgotten, so I'm, I'm laughing to myself. Um, well, it, there's an historical reason. Uh, I was a little kid when this music came out, and I remember the Beatles coming out, and I was jealous of them. You know, all, all the little girls loved the Beatles and the little boys, and I said, who the hell are they, and so on. But I watched them on the Ed Sullivan show at that time, like everyone else, and I, you know, they were singing, she loves you, yeah, yeah, and I didn't care. And then they had a a segment where Paul McCartney came out and sang yesterday and I got it. I said, wow, that's, that's beautiful. I didn't get the, the, so much to me. Well, I'm going to say the song grew on me. So it became part of my childhood. It transformed me into an appreciator of this group and I became a huge fan. And then as time went on and I got older and we all get older, I realized the profundity of this song, that as you get older, you you look back and you think about things, and now the song has a totally different meaning to me. Uh, you know, I was carefree. I wasn't, but it seems now as though I were when I was a child. Uh, it's a song that's relevant for when I do psychotherapy. Uh, your, your problems seem more real now than they did then, and... Um, I think it's it's a very deep and profound song, and I, it's hard for me to believe that Paul McCartney wrote that in his 20s. But that's basically what it means to me. That's incredible. 
It, you are the first person I've ever known, first male, I should say, well, first person, but to admit that they were jealous of the Beatles <laughs> after watching him on Ed Sullivan going to school the next day and hearing all the girls rave on about him. I thought that was just me, just me. I was alone in the world. So it's relieving to hear that you, too, were jealous. And di and I assume you didn't like him because of that initially. Exactly right. And it was this <laughs> song that turned me around. That's uh, crazy. I didn't like them because all the girls liked them. I wasn't even uh, that knowledgeable that I like girls, but I knew I'd rather have them admire me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before the break, uh, we mentioned, or, or I mentioned, uh, the power negative information has, and we seem to prioritize that. What is that about? How come? Okay, so, so uh, our minds, like our bodies, evolved to help us survive in a certain environment. And the environment was what's called now the Pleistocene era, and we're on the African savannah. And if you think about survival in a hunting gathering type of a society with with uh, little or no technology beyond primitive tools, if you miss seeing food, you'll go hungry. If you miss seeing the leopard, you become leopard lunch. It's over for you. So our minds evolved to focus more on the negative because you can't miss that. To miss it is to die. To miss the positive is to be deprived. So, for example, you gave a couple of examples. I'll give another. You're driving on the highway and there's an accident and traffic stops and everyone gets angry. Why are they all stopping to look at this? Uh, and then you stop too and look at it. Whereas if you're mm -hmm. driving on the highway and it's a beautiful fall day and all the leaves have turned color, you drive right by. We're built for that. And that's the reason we're built for that. All right. Many people, Professor, think of a separation between conscious and unconscious processes. And there are a lot of popular assertions that often insist metaphorically, at least, that the conscious mind is the tail and the unconscious is the dog. Your work suggests that the two are involved together much more than this simple metaphor suggests. Please unpack that for us. Thank you for asking that, Elvin. I think that's central to the book. There's no such thing, in my opinion now, having done the research, as a pure unconscious process or a pure conscious process. They both contribute to everything, but to different degrees. I'll give a very simple example. We're having a conversation now, and we're conscious. You're talking to me. You asked a perfectly coherent, rational question. Hopefully, I'm just as rational and coherent in answering you. Where did those words come from that you used and that I used? Did I, did I consciously choose them? No. They're just kind of coming out of my mouth and they're coming out of your mouth. So there has to be an unconscious process going on at the same time as the conscious process is going on. But we just don't notice it, which is kind of the definition of unconscious. We tend to call something unconscious when it seems like we don't know where it came from. But even the things that are obvious have an unconscious component. And even when, they, when you get a subliminal stimulus, which they'll call pure unconscious, they then ask you to respond. Well, you're responding consciously. So there's no pure process. Uh, everything is a mix. Everything is, is, is all jumbled, which makes everything more interesting, but also more complex. I hope I've explained it okay. 
Yeah, that's great. That's that's really good. I, I you know I've interviewed a number of leading scientists that argue there is no such thing as free will. <clears throat> Indeed, uh, I will not name him, but a very <laughs> prominent man um, whose face appears on the cover of many magazines, scientists says. Free will is an illusion with a little bit of a giggle at the end of it. What are your thoughts on this? I think that we have less free will than we would like to believe, but that it does exist. I mean, for, for God's sake, in physics, there's uncertainty in the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So somehow in human beings, we have absolute determinism. That's crazy to me. So there's some something going on that's not determined a hundred percent. And by the way, I think if we understand ourselves better, we increase that amount of, of, of what you're calling free will. I don't Amen. know if there's a term for it, um, but it has to exist. Otherwise, everything would be certain. And uh, starting with the Big Bang, you and I are talking here as an absolutely determined aspect of the fact that the universe started. To me, that's crazy. So there has to be something. I don't understand it. I don't pretend to understand it. But it clearly exists. There's a statistical uncertainty of nothing else in our behaviors and our thoughts. There, there is um, choices that we make that I don't think are totally determined and so on. So I don't know who this guy is on the cover of Time magazine, but God bless him. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, he's been on our show. Those people that have listened to the show will know who he is. But I'll, let me try something by you. When I'm asked this question... Um, I basically think of it this way. And so I'm going to, I'm going to put a model out there and, and pick it apart, throw it away, whatever. But, you know, we all have the defense strategies, um, that, you know, have occurred because of the various, um, necessities we have to fit in and belong to the herd and, and be respected, et cetera, and so forth. And in order for those strategies to work, they're unconscious by definition. And, and we all have avoidance techniques, also a part of our strategies, but in the sense that there are things we enjoy and things that we don't enjoy, and we all have biases. And uh, those biases, you know, they exist in our unconscious as a result of everything from entertainment to our real life experience. So... You know, a hoodie may mean something to one person. It may mean something to someone else in an entirely different culture. But nevertheless, even something as simple as a hoodie uh, is going to contain a definition attached to it that signals some meaning and maybe even some emotional component. And these things exist essentially in our unconscious until and unless we get them out of there. And as Freud said you know, up and on the table so that they're not controlling our lives. So, in my mind, your book, the kind of training that you do is a way to get this up on the table. Once I get it up on the table, once I change these definitions, these, these or recognize these biases and begin to re-engineer them, then I gain added, as you put it, free will. 
I gain it because I'm no longer reacting without giving any thought to what it is that that I'm doing. Does that make us any sense as a model? Yes, it does make a lot of sense as a model. So let, let, let me elaborate why. So defense mechanisms, a couple of things. You mentioned bias, you mentioned defense mechanisms, they're related. So bias, we've learned implicitly. We talked about implicit learning. In order to get rid of that bias, we have to know we have it. So as you put it, it has to be put out on the table. In order to get rid of a defense mechanism, the way I do this in psychotherapy is I tell the person, this worked for you. That's why you're doing it. You learned it, it worked. But it's no longer the best strategy you can use. It was great when you were 10 years old, 8 years old, 14 years old, whenever it was you developed it. It was the best you can do. You have many more resources now. You need a better strategy that would be more adaptive and help make your life better than, than, than it now is. Because you wouldn't be seeing me if your life was all it could be. So, okay. Now, it's on the table. Okay, and now we have the free will that you described. But I think there's another step. You have to learn the new coping strategy. And you have to, there's a concept in my book called automaticity. The old right. coping strategy, the defense mechanism, the bias, whatever it was, you've practiced it so many times, it's become habitual to you. And unconscious and uncontrollable to a certain degree. Now you have this new strategy, but it's new. You've never tried it. You've never, you need now to practice this new one and make that automatic. So the, the, the expression I use in my book is first make the unconscious conscious, which is what you described. And now you have to make the conscious, your new thinking, unconscious. You have to make it the automatic default way that you behave. So you make the unconscious conscious, you exercise your free will and make a choice, and now you practice your new more adaptive behavior till it becomes automatic and unconscious and you're good to go. A lot easier said than done, but basically that's it. Right, right. Well, and we have our lifetimes to do that. Either one. Otherwise, we're living uh, an automatic form of counterfeit to who we might otherwise be. At least those are my thoughts. Couldn't agree more. There's a lot of pioneering work going on today, Professor, about various... Um, elements of the the brain mind interface in the neuroscience fields so we see fmri being used while people are making decisions and so forth and and there are those who um have shown in fact there are several studies now that show that a fmri tech can actually know what you're going to decide in in the confines of their experiment before you do all right but recently, there was a new study that was published uh, just this past month in the Journal of Neuroscience where they used electroencephalography to determine if uh, participants had a bias. The interesting thing to me about this was, according to the researchers, the bias uh, was measured by the strength of alpha waves. They concluded that weaker alpha waves meant resisting the bias, while stronger alpha waves indicated succumbing to the bias. So I've got a two-part question for you, sir. First, what are your thoughts on this sort of investigation? And second, what have alpha waves got to do with decision-making? Okay, uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with that particular study, so I'm going to answer that more generally. You, you obviously okay. know more about it than I. But I'll, I'll say this, that, that uh, there's a lot of... Neuroscience comes with assumptions also. 
that there's this part of your brain does this and that part of your brain does that. And then you kind of find what you're looking for, so to speak. So I'm going to look for bias. I'm going to find bias. Um, I'm not sure what alpha waves have to do with anything, whether they're stronger or weaker. I know that there's some old research on meditation that shows the importance of alpha waves. So, and I believe in meditation. So I'm, I'm believing that alpha waves are important. In terms of, of understanding things in terms of neuroscience, I think that's one way to understand things. And I write in the book about three neurocognitive uh, models of the mind, but they kind of conflict with each other. We don't know really how the mind and the unconscious mind works. Are, is the mind one big general processor that just everything happens at once? We know that everything happens in parallel anyway. Are there different parts of the mind that don't talk to each other? Or is it a combination? And I think it's the it's the latter. It's a combination. It's a theory called neural reuse that says you got to build on what you have. You're not going to just evolve a new piece of the brain for every new task you have. So you build on what you have. And that's why, by the way, when we talk, we move our hands because the motor part of our brain is part of the verbal part of our brain. It's the same thing. The physical and the verbal are artificially uh, disconnected by us, but it's in fact not disconnected. The physical and the verbal. I know you had John Barge on as right. as a, uh, as a guest, and he's done some wonderful research on this, where you hold something warm and you become more friendly. That's because the same part of the brain that that does physical temperature does emotional warmth. Um, so what we need to do is understand how how the brain works in a more general way, rather than come in with a pre-existing theory. So I have problems with some of these MRI studies that are going to look for the locus of bias. I'm not sure there is a locus of bias. I'm sure there is bias, and I'm sure that it's in the brain somewhere, but I suspect it's interconnected in several parts of the brain rather than in one particular area. You know, I, that makes perfect sense. But an interesting question, and you're a researcher, so it's something you obviously have access to do. But this study seemed to imply to me that when automaticity was involved, when it was just coming out of the unconscious purely, that there was there were greater alpha waves, a, a larger proportion of alpha waves to the total brain wave um, than when there was resistance. Um, and of course, you mentioned alpha as a part of meditation, and you know, of course, it is. I think everybody recognizes that. But when we're in an alpha state, we're not really exercising explicit learning techniques we're generally drifting off to daydream etc so i just wonder if there isn't a, a correspondence between an increased amount of alpha waves with the automaticity i'm not in, i'm not involved in actually thinking about this i'm just responding versus i'm now trying to override that implicit bias because i become aware of it and therefore, I enter more beta, and there's fewer alpha. Just a thought. Okay. Wanna... So, so please, at the level of when you're not thinking about something and you're running on automatic, are you more likely to show bias? Yes. Uh, you're more likely not to be thoughtful. Yes. Uh, so that's true. If that is reflected in alpha waves, then that study makes perfect sense to me. 
The problem with overriding is overriding is temporary. Uh, you need to figure out a way to override it all the time because otherwise the next time you daydream or, or lose focus or just living your life without uh, consciously thinking about it, we can't be mindful all, all the time unless we're the Buddha, um, you, will go, you will go back to your automatic way of thinking. So the idea that the conscious can override the unconscious, yes, but only for a period of time. All right, I have a $64,000 question for you. Okay. Everybody knows how important the mind is. I mean, everywhere you turn, people are saying, stay positive, you know, today. Uh, be optimistic, you know. We've all heard about the zone for athletes, etc. That being the case, why is there so much resistance to acknowledging a psychodynamic, active unconscious that we can access and train. <laughs> because it's a lot of work and it's hard and we don't have direct access to it. There's even a historical philosophical reason for it among intellectuals. You know, Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And thinking, therefore, is identified with mental and you can't say, I think, but I'm unaware of what I think, therefore I am. So the unconscious was ruled out intellectually early on. And then it came into thinking in terms of mysticism. Scientists don't like mysticism. Then the general public doesn't want to believe that they're not masters of their own fate. Um, you know, Freud said there were three blows to, uh, to human self-centeredness. There, there was, we're not the center of the universe. Uh, Copernicus, we're not the center of creation, Darwin, and we're not the masters of ourselves, Freud himself. Right. So in order to become master of yourself, in order to know thyself, as, uh, as Socrates put it, you have to accept that there are parts of yourself that you don't know, that there are parts of yourself that are not altogether attractive to you. You have to be willing to put them on the table. You have to be willing to accept that they're there, and then you have to be willing to work on it. None of that is easy, and none of that is, is, is something that most people are happy to do, at least at first. You know, in talking to you, I can tell you care deeply about people. In reading your book, I thought, because I write, you know, uh, I've got a few books myself, I thought, whoa, how long did it take this, these two people, because you have a co-author, right. how long did it take them to put this together? I mean, what on earth? You would have to be really motivated. So I've got a two-part question. What was your biggest challenge in writing the book, and why did you do that? Okay. So there's an historical reason, two, two reasons why I did that. And my, my co-author I, I brought in, she, you'd have to ask her her reasons. When I was first in grad school in the late 1970s, early 1980s, there was there's no such thing as the unconscious. And I'm taking this graduate course on motivation. And my professor is saying there's no such thing as the unconscious. And here's a chapter I wrote to demonstrate it. And I remember thinking, he's crazy. How can anyone say that? And why do I have to prove there's an unconscious? Why don't you prove to me there's consciousness? So that started me going. And plus, I was interested in motivation. And most of our motivations are unconscious. As I studied this stuff, it's, it became clear to me, you mentioned how long did it take me to write the book. There's two answers to that. One, it took about three years. 
and the other one is it took 20 years. Um, so the uh, I've been looking at this and trying to get my hands around it for decades because the people who study this thing, I'm not sure why, don't talk to each other, let alone read one another's work. So if you read the clinical literature or the psychoanalytic literature, they're not reading social psychology, they're not reading cognitive science. If you read cognitive science and social psychology, they're not reading the clinical literature. And if you read neuroscience, everyone kind of does a little smattering of neuroscience nowadays, it's fashionable, but no one gets into it. So in order to write a book on the unconscious, we had to go into all of these areas. And uh, that was the biggest challenge, that was tough. And the motive was, hey, you guys are talking about the same phenomena. Maybe you ought to talk to each other. I don't have the answers, but maybe I can put you in touch with each other. And maybe you'll then talk to one another and, and share your insights and, and, and share the, the, the knowledge that you have that the other person doesn't have. And so that's why I wrote it. The biggest challenge was uh, I, I found myself reading philosophy. I didn't want to do that, but I had to. I found myself reading uh, neuroscience. Actually, I enjoyed that. I didn't know that I would. <laughs> and uh, social psych I've always been into, uh, and clinical psychology I practice. So, so that, that's what it was. My co-author is more in the clinical sphere. So uh, she helped flesh out some of the examples and, and, and a lot of the, uh, the psychoanalytic literature and so on. It's a great book. I want everybody to read it. We're out of time, Professor. We're going to have to bring you back again. You're a wealth of knowledge. And you studied with one of my my idols, Lloyd Silverman. I had tons uh -huh. of questions to talk to you about that. But all right. I want to thank you for your work, sir, and for your willingness to share it with us. We've come thank to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time, same place. Until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.